conversion rate optimization and traffic driving are two separate things, two completely separate things. But people conflate them because they just assume you're driving traffic. That means it's going to convert. And that's the true same for SEO, right? You can drive traffic via a really kick-butt content marketing strategy. But what do you have in place on site that's going to convert them, enter them into your sales funnel, get them on your email list? Because a lot of times people will be like, we're driving so much more traffic, but nobody's buying. And I'm like, that's a separate issue. People don't want to hear that, though, but it really is. Welcome to the third season of the Simple and Smart SEO Show, the podcast dedicated to empathy-driven, brand-building SEO. I'm your host, Crystal Waddell. I leverage my obsession with user experience to help business owners just like you optimize your website with confidence. Thank you so much for being here. Let's jump into another great episode. We are back with another awesome episode of the Simple and Smart SEO Show podcast. I am here with a special guest, Nina Gibson who is going to talk to us all about SEO and its importance and its changes. And we're just going to have a super fun conversation. But before she introduces herself, Nina, I wanted to tell you that I heard you on the Product Biz podcast with Monica. And as soon as I heard you talking, I was like, oh my gosh, we have to have a conversation because you were just so straightforward with your SEO application and the tactics and the ideas that you had about really having high performing strategies. So I was hoping you could introduce yourself, tell us about your SEO journey, and definitely want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Yang, thank you so much, Crystal. I am super excited to be here. And I appreciate you saying that about my episode with Monica, which was super fun. It was such a good conversation with her. I'm Nina Gibson. I'm an SEO expert and digital marketer. I've been in the space since 2009. I started in enterprise level SEO. And in 2014, I went out on my own as a business owner. I don't know when this episode is airing, but 2024 is officially my 10 year anniversary. So super exciting. And yeah, I started a lot of agency level work as a contractor, freelancer doing all of that. But in the past few years, I've really shifted to female owned businesses and helping them leverage the amazingness that is SEO in the entrepreneurship landscape. Awesome. So we talked just a little bit before we popped on here about how SEO really is a male dominated industry. Mm -hmm. And there's been some chatter in SEO circles about how SEO is changing and how SEO has ruined the internet. And so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that that you'd like to share, maybe expound on a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the idea that SEO has somehow ruined the internet because the entire purpose and intent of good SEO is to meet the user need. So if somebody is doing SEO the way it's meant to be, that means that they're creating content around the user. So the idea that it's somehow ruining the internet is it's false because everything has a good intent when it comes to SEO and content creation and things like that. But that being said, there's so many old school SEO tactics that I think are still at play or that people have perception perceptions of buying links or just creating a bunch of crappy content just for the sake of creating content. And Google's really trying to tamper that with like their helpful content update and things like that. And this, the space is changing. The advent of ChatGPT and OpenAI into the public landscape has 50% changed the game. And it's changing so rapidly that it's hard for any business to keep up with. So I don't think FEOs have ruined the internet. I think if anything, people's behavior and their online search behavior has changed so rapidly. It's hard for even a company like Google 
to keep pace with it. So I think that's a big part of what we're seeing. And now with AI, it's just every day something new. Is- yeah. So uh, you said something that I think is so important because I once I started diving into SEO myself for my Shopify mm-hmm. store, I started realizing how it converged with all of these other practices that were almost like siloed in the internet, yes. like user experience for one. So I see you nodding your head there. Do you Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like those disciplines are merging or any thoughts on how to incorporate the user experience when you're also doing SEO? Yeah, 100%. I think that the biggest sort of mistake and the biggest sort of dishonest thing for me when it comes to SEO, that it, it really is siloed in people's minds. And from my perspective, especially heading into 2024, SEO and UX are one and the same, in my personal opinion. You really can't have one without the other. And I think that's even true for things like PR and social proof. They're really converging and you cannot now have an SEO content strategy that doesn't have PR and social proof somehow involved. And I think that when it comes to UX, a lot of people forget the fundamentals. There are so many amazing designers out there who focus on beautiful websites, but they're not really thinking about the user. They're not really thinking about how should the navigation be structured. This is especially true for product-based businesses. I see so many small product-based businesses on Shopify with amazing products. And I'm like, it just says shop. There aren't any Mm -hmm. other there's nothing or their product pages are really thin because they're worried that's going to impact conversion rates and things like that. But really the UX component is anything you do for user experience is going to help your SEO and vice versa. That sometimes takes time figuring out what that is, but playing around with button colors, understanding what information users need to be able to make a purchase, making your navigation really clear and easy to understand and don't hide the important stuff, right? Sometimes the really important information gets buried and somebody has to like really fight on your site to find it. So those types of things are so great for UX, but also super great for SEO. Yeah, and that reminds me of something you said on Monica's show that really made my mind go, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I have to talk to you because so many people, when they create their stores or their websites, they stick with those just very generic terms of like contact or shop or stuff or whatever. You know what I mean? It doesn't say what you're doing or what you're selling. And I've really pushed against people to say, hey, let's use a keyword in your navigation so that people know what to expect on the other side of that click. And I heard you say something similar. So I was hoping you could maybe share that thought and why you feel like it's important. Yeah. So this is something I cannot tell you how many websites I've worked on where they have spent literally sometimes millions of dollars on a brand new website. And they're like, our traffic dropped 30 to 40%. And I'm like, that's because you didn't take SEO into consideration. And truth be told, and this is especially true for e-com, you should not be building a website without having done keyword and market research first. Every single thing you do on your website in terms of your navigation structure, your interlinking strategy, your collections page, naming conventions, the words that you're using on your pages, how you're even naming your products needs to be rooted in SEO, aka keyword research and market research to understand the terms that your users are actually using to find the products that you sell. And if you're not doing that right from the get-go, it's going to be really hard for you to get a leg up. And there's a lot of chatter that keyword research is going to become less important. And I think that's true with a caveat. Short tail keywords like running shoes, I think are going to become less pertinent. Long tail keywords that tend to be less competitive and lower search volume, like that's running shoes for wide feet, I think are going to become more the norm. If you are not leveraging 
that on your website, you're already a step behind when you launch. So it's really important to make sure your collections pages aren't just collection one or collection two. If you sell beeswax candles, then it needs to say beeswax candles and also headings. Only one H1 per page. And that should mimic really the target keyword of that page and so on and so forth. Keyword research informs almost everything you're doing on your website. I, I, I get really excited talking. About it. So yeah, because it's so important. And I'm over here cheering you on because like it's here. It's almost like you're preaching to the choir because I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, it's just so good to hear someone else say that you don't have to be afraid of not being generic, but it actually works in your favor. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the things that people need to do when they start their shop or their website. And you rattled off a list there. And so I'd like to revisit that. The You said people will spend millions of dollars on a website, but not take into consideration SEO. And I think we could also say you know, if SEO and UX are one and the same, that they don't consider the user experience either. And one thing I learned as I was going through Google's UX training, because I wanted to get the UX certificate, there's this idea that we create websites without actually having someone interact with the website. So how do you incorporate that? Or do you have any suggestions for people who are trying to improve their website, but yet may not realize you need a user to interact with it to really help you improve it? A hundred percent. That's such a good point. So the first thing I will say is it can't be you because you are too close to it, right? And you're not able to get perspective. There are some really great tools if you have a budget like usertesting.com and things like that where random people are selected and you can set up specific tasks or things for them to do and they'll go through your website and they'll have a video recording of it and they'll give you comments and feedback. That's been around for quite a while. If you don't have a budget, enlist some friends, right? People who maybe aren't, who haven't been on your website before or maybe only a few times and be like, hey, can you check this out? on your phone? Can you check this out in Chrome? Can you check this out in Firefox? That's something else I see a lot of people, they assume, okay, I have a Shopify site and it has a responsive design. So I don't need to worry about what things look like on mobile because it's automatically going to work. No, I, I was working with a major beer company last summer and they were running a promotion and it was geared toward men, beer company. And it was a guy in jeans with some sort of fanny pack on and on the homepage, on a desktop site, it was the full image of the guy. Nobody checked it on mobile and it was just a, just 100% zoned in right on his crotch, right? I mean, it, it wasn't great. So under mobile, people are landing on their homepage and all they see is this gentleman's, you know, business up front and center because nobody had checked on to see how that looks on mobile. But that they assumed it would be fine because it's responsive design. But I think those are the types of things that we really need to take into consideration and either, you know, enlisting friends or family if you don't have a budget or if you do using something like user testing to get people's eyes on your site so they can walk through. Because oftentimes things that feel intuitive to us as a business owner are not intuitive to how people actually use the internet. And there's an enormous amount of research and case studies out there on the different types of internet users, how people interact with your content. Listen to those case studies. We just do not assume that you know how people are going to interact. There are colors that we should be using for CTA. There are structures to pages, how people scan websites, especially on mobile. Pay attention to those things. Do some reading. There's a lot of great free information out there, but 100% have other people beside yourself take a peek at your website. Yeah. And again, I think it's really interesting like how you can just learn 
new things that you may not be aware of. Like when I went to the Brighton SEO conference in San Diego back in November, mm-hmm. they had different people talking about color theory. I never really thought about color theory on websites, but one thing that stood out to me from the presentation was like the color red is difficult to read on a screen. So even when you're creating like SEO reports for someone, we associate the color red with hey warning or whatever, but it was, you got to find a different color and just the colors that people associate with certain feelings or whatever. It's just things that go so far beyond just setting up a, a shop to sell things. It's interesting. It is really interesting. I think that just speaks to the idea of marketing a business online is not as simple as getting an Instagram following and having really great product. And I think that this is just something having been in, I've done PPC as well, managed millions and millions of dollars for big global brands. Everything works together. SEO is 150% foundational for a business. There are so many different pieces that come together that make a business successful online. And I think that the biggest sort of delusion is that all you need to do is go viral on TikTok or all you need to do is build a following on Instagram and then that's it. When really there are all these different facets of online business that need to happen. And what people don't realize, I think sometimes is SEO is rooted in much all of them, especially as we head into 2024. So this idea of SEO is its own little thing over here and it's techie and I don't really need to worry about it is like the biggest lie that I've ever seen perpetuated. It needs to inform everything that you're doing. Oh, I, I just so appreciate that you said that. And before we jump back to the foundational things that you talked about, because mm. I really do want to go back and revisit it. One question I want to ask you is if somebody who's DIYing their website, they want to do something that's going to have the most impact in terms of their SEO strategy. What would that one thing be that you said, do this today and this will have the greatest impact for your SEO? Yeah. So I think a few things depend on if you're an e-commerce site or not, but let's assume that you're e-commerce. I would say it would be to make sure that you're targeting one unique keyword per page, that your collections pages are targeting overarching categories. And then it breaks down from there. If you have some collections and that your product pages are optimized accordingly. So from that, we'll pick just your collections pages. They really need to be Again, if you're selling beeswax candles, beeswax candles, coconut wax candles, et cetera, whatever that primary target is, do some keyword research and make sure that it has an optimized title, a description, an H1 that corresponds with that target keyword. And there's a little bit of, you know, back and forth on whether or not on-page copy for e-commerce pages like collections pages is necessary. I think John Mueller made a comment about it, that it's not. I disagree because it creates an opportunity to create interlinking that otherwise might not be there for e-commerce sites. So for that reason, I think it's really important. So I would say focus on your collections pages. That would probably be my number one. There's so many different things, but really nailing those collection pages because they should be targeting those broader categories that are going to drive traffic for you. Man, I think it's such a great takeaway that sometimes the actual benefit for your business goes beyond just the general reasoning of why people do things. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Sometimes it's not going to make sense for everybody. Sometimes it will make sense for everybody. But what's most important is that it makes sense for your business, right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to this foundational setup. Okay. So let's pretend that, okay, maybe I didn't create my website with SEO in mind. 
What are some steps that one could go through to go back and optimize what's already been done? Yeah. So the first thing I would recommend doing is if you haven't set up Google Search Console to set it up and get an idea of how Google sees your site. What are you currently ranking for? Is it aligned with what your website is about, either your products or your services? And then go from there. You know, start thinking about your navigation pages. So if you're a product-based business, again, like your collections or categories, if you're a service provider, whatever you have in your top navigation. And based on how Google is seeing your website and what you're ranking on, do some keyword research. Use that Google Search Console data as a jumping off point and do some keyword research to figure out, okay, what should I really be targeting on each of these pages. So for example, if you're a health and wellness coach, your services page might be, you know, health and wellness coaching for moms over 40. And your about page might be, you know, health and wellness coach. Maybe that's just the term. Those types of things, right? Could be more nuanced than that or might be less nuanced depending on the space that you're in. But really going through, again, that one-to-one keyword targeting, making sure that each page is targeting a unique term and then start creating interlinking. You know, I see a lot of people who are afraid to link out to other pages on their website, but link out to your about or services page from a blog post. Link out to your services page from your about page, right? That's how Google understands what your website is about and it's over our overarching structure and hierarchy. So that interlinking piece is often overlooked, but really important. If the bots can't crawl, if they get to a dead end, they're just going to bounce and they won't hit the rest of your site. Okay. So a tactical question about interlinking. Mm. Is there like a minimum number of links that you should have going out from one page to another or coming into one page to another? There isn't really a general rule. I always tell my clients, if it's a blog post, I always aim for at least two internal links. One link might be to your about page and one might be to another blog post or one might be to a service page, etc. There really isn't a hard or fast rule. I like at minimum, one internal link per page, right? Everything should be linking out to something else on your website and vice versa. So you're creating that nice hierarchy. And the best way to do that to keep track is if you put all your URLs in a spreadsheet that have like their target keyword and their title tag and the description, you can also have a column that's like interlinking. Yes. And then you can have another column to which URLs it's interlinking to. So you can keep track of it that way. Yeah, I would say that tracking changes with SEO has been one of the most challenging things for me personally, especially doing it for other people. It's like when I do it for myself, I don't always pay attention to the tracking. But when you're providing services to someone else, they need to know what you're doing, when you did it, and then what happened. Do you have any suggestions for workflows for tracking and monitoring the changes that you make? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I'm a big fan of Google Sheets that is client owned. So they always are able to track that. And usually how I do it is categorized by, is it page specific? Is it site specific? Is it product page specific? Depending on the type of site I'm working for, what was the change? When was it implemented? If there's some sort of keyword ranking involved, what was the keyword ranking? What was the benchmark? The 90 days prior, what was it at the time of the change? Whatever that date is, 90 day or 60 day checkout, look ahead from there. So I use a Google sheet usually. I annotate an analytics sometimes depending on the changes. And then you can also put that into something like ChatGPT and timeline it and be like, hey, these are all the changes that I've made for this client in Q4. Can you create an easy to read timeline of events for me with the changes and impact? And then you can present it that way versus being like, hey, here's this Google sheet of everything we did. Yeah. 
I love yeah. that practical application of how to use a large language model to do a task for you. Oh, yeah. Make forever. <laughs> it's great for stuff like that. I love it for stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So once you make these changes, what then could be some realistic expectations for improvement? I also want to let you know that my free three-day challenge is back. So if you want to join the Supercharge Your SEO three-day challenge, it is June 4th, 5th, and 6th. And you can register for free at crystalwidell.com forward slash supercharge. So hope to see you inside the challenge. This is a really good question. And I get asked this a lot, especially in the sales cycle process, right? What can I expect and when can I expect it? So much of it depends on the industry and space that you're in. I worked, she's still a client, but she's an online retailer. She has a very successful Etsy shop, but she was like, I want my website traffic to grow too. And we optimized at the beginning of January of this year. And within two and a half weeks, we were already seeing 20, 25% traffic growth on core terms to her collections pages for her Shopify website. I would say that's a little bit of a unicorn, especially because the space is moderately competitive, but her site was primed for, right? We just did a little bit of fine tuning and things like that. Other sites, it can take a year to see the results, right? Residual growth, like over time, it's incremental, but it's not really till you hit a year out where you're like, oh, wow, this grew 25%, but it took that full 12 months. And it depends on what we're trying to do, right? Are we just trying to get low hanging fruit? Okay, low hanging fruit will probably be like a 60 to 90 day before we start to see impact? Are we going after a really competitive space? Okay. So there are a lot of different sort of nuances to that. But in general, I tell clients a minimum of 90 days, a minimum before you can start to expect to see results. So how do you quantify or identify low-hanging fruit? That's a good question. So usually from a keyword perspective, anything that is like a keyword difficulty of like under 20 to 25 using SEMrush, and search volume is irrelevant, right? It's really based on how competitive the term is because you could have a term that has a keyword difficulty of one, but 250 average monthly searches. So that's how I identify it from a metric related to the keyword. And then in relation to how the client's website is currently at, right? There's just the current status. Is it a brand new site? Is it a site that's been around for five years? Does it already have a lot of content and topical authority? Or are we starting from scratch? And then I, you know, identify what could be potentially low-hanging fruit based on that as well. Because it's not just a keyword. It's what is the possibility of this particular page ranking well for this term, given all of the exogenous factors. And so it, it varies by website. But the first thing I look at is how competitive is the term space. And then you mentioned that you used to work in PPC. Yeah. Well, I'm curious. Do you think it's important to implement your SEO strategy and kind of execute that and then implement some sort of retargeting campaign? Or is it better to start with PPC until you get going and then implement SEO? Or do you have any thoughts on the when and what to do first or next? Yeah. So PPC, I always say, if you're not ready to lose money and you don't have budget to lose money, then it's not ready for you. And so I always have clients back out their KPI metrics. So let's say you're an e-commerce site and you have a 1% conversion rate on your site with an average order value of $50. Let's say for the sake of math that it's a dollar a click in the space that you're in, probably going to be more. So if you're getting a thousand clicks, right, 
at a dollar a pop, that's a thousand dollars at a 1% conversion rate and a $50 AOV, you're losing money. And so if you're not ready to spend the kind of money that you need to get in order to have a positive ROI, then I would say it doesn't, there's no right or wrong time. If your conversion rate isn't at least three to 5% minimum, you shouldn't be spending money on ads. That's my personal opinion because chances are you're going to have a negative return. And and if you have a low AOV, if you have a 10 or $15 AOV, think about how much traffic you're going to have to drive in order to make money. And so this is something people don't often think about because they're like, oh, I'll just spend money on ads. And I'm like, but how is your website actually converting right now? So most websites aren't converting at three to 5%, right? And some of them never will. So you really have to back out your metrics and understand how much do I need to spend based on the current like auction space when a dollar a click is generous. But I mean, with PMAX and things like that, it's possible in order to get a positive ROI. And so it's usually a lot more money than people realize. Plus, then there's a management fee if you're hiring somebody to do it and all of those things. So I always say start with SEO first. A, it's evergreen. B, you don't have to continue putting money into it, right? And C, it's foundational. So PPC is the next step once you have an established conversion rate and an AOV that can support ad spend. That was such a great breakdown because that's something that I've looked at for a long time that I was trying to figure out like, at what point would it really make sense for me to do X, Y, or Z? And I found some fun little workarounds with low ad spends on Facebook, retargeting, and even on Pinterest. But I was in a Pinterest group where they recommended spending four times the cost of your product per day for your ad spend. Now, Mm -hmm. the cost of the product that I sell is $200 or higher. So I was thinking, ooh, that's an expensive experiment at $800 a day. I make sure that I'm getting in front of the right person. So I think just your tips there are very spot on and just helps you understand like your numbers, like what numbers are we actually comparing here? Exactly. And not a lot of small business owners are, it's not that they don't know, it's just some people start businesses and they have, they've never been in marketing or things like that, right? So really understanding your KPIs and really understanding what it takes to be profitable before you add any kind of ad spend onto it. And I think too, people assume that this is everybody, whether you're an enterprise level CMO or a small business owner, people assume that driving traffic is the only thing that you need to do. I can take $20,000 and drive ton of traffic all day long, right? That doesn't mean that it's going to convert. Conversion rate optimization and traffic driving are two separate things, two completely separate things. But people conflate them because they just assume you're driving traffic. That means it's going to convert. And really, and that's the true same for SEO, right? You can drive traffic via a really kick butt content marketing strategy. But what do you have in place on site that's going to convert them, enter them into your sales funnel, get them on your email list, what have you? And so understanding that those are two distinct overlapping and parallel things in your business is really important. Because a lot of times people will be like, we're driving so much more traffic, but nobody's buying. And I'm like, that's a separate issue. People don't want to hear that though, but it really is. And so if people are coming to your website at a large clip in four things that are related to what you sell or the service that you offer, and they're not converting, it's time to take a look at your website and see what the issue is. So that's, you know, I think a really important distinction. Traffic, driving traffic and brand awareness and converting that traffic 
two different things. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like how to drive better converting traffic. Mm -hmm. But I want to share a story that is slightly embarrassing, but also hopefully slightly inspiring. I, I make senior night gifts for athletes. And so I have tried to create this content hub of senior night resources. And one thing that I found when I was going through Google Search Console recently was is people were finding me through Google for senior night speech ideas mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And so I realized, oh my goodness, there's a product that I do not offer that people are looking for. And that's a digital product of senior night ideas, senior night quotes, kind of fill in the blank, senior night questionnaire type thing. And so that's something that I'm going to be focusing on in Q1 creating to meet that need because I'm driving a lot of traffic. They're not quite ready to spend the $300 on a senior night gift, but there is something else that they're looking for that I can provide. So yeah. I just wanted to say, if you find yourself in a situation where you're driving lots of traffic, but people aren't wanting to buy that thing that you sell, there may be something that you can create instead that meets their need. I think that's awesome, awesome advice. I think that's a great story. I don't think it's embarrassing at all. I think that what that speaks to is five years ago or even two years ago, we had this idea of the traditional marketing funnel, right? Like awareness, et cetera, et cetera, down to the conversion path. But really, and this is to TikTok's credit, it's like an infinity symbol now, right? And so that old idea of the funnel is really slowly going away and people are going into this infinite loop instead of a traditional funnel. And a big part of that infinite loop are brand touch points. And a lot of that goes back to SEO, like the content, like what you just said. That person is not necessarily ready yet, maybe, but they Googled something that you have content on. They come to your website. They're like, ooh, I like this content and this woman vibe. They either get on your email list or they buy that digital product. And then six months later, they convert into a paying customer. This is how it works. The idea that somebody is going to come to your website cold and purchase, it happens, but that expectation needs to go away. It's not. It used to be seven touch points. I think they've upped it to 21 now, right? People need to be nurtured. And so I think going back to your original question about what kind of keywords or what can you do to create content that's more transactional, right? Or more conversion focused, back to keyword research and understanding what types of keywords are people searching for where they are ready to buy. And, you know, the beautiful thing about keyword research is that we can extract that intent, right? That transactional intent where somebody is ready to purchase, they want to purchase now, or that commercial intent where somebody is, I know I need this thing, but I'm not sure where I need it from. And as Google heads to this SGE search engine experience, which I, I think will probably launch sometime in Q1 across the board, we know for a fact that informational keywords are, they're not on their way out. They're always going to be important, but Google's really prioritizing transactional and commercial-based keywords. So I think how you can better target that is create content around, let's say, for example, you sell running shoes, a runner's guide to running shoes for wide feet. That's going to have a commercial intent, that term, like running shoes for wide feet. I know this for a fact. I have a client that <laughs> that is an e-commerce store that sells running shoes and, and other things. But you can create an entire guide around that. That person might not convert right away, but they're going to remember that you created and served them really amazing information about how to find a wide fit running shoe. And they're either going to get on your email list or they're going to come back two weeks later and buy from you. So thinking about that type of content that's transactional or commercial intended, but outside of just a traditional product page. Of course, you want to get people on a product page for transactional keywords. But those commercial keywords where people are like, I'm investigating, I know I need it, but I'm not sure who I need it from. 
think beyond just, oh, here's a collections page for you. What kind of engaging, interactive, really good content can you create that hits that user need there? Yeah, that reminds me again of a conversation that I had with someone just recently about their website. And I talked about it today on, well, on today's episode, which was in December. That's where, that's when we are right now. But he has a uh, dog training service. And after we got off the phone, we had talked about just some surface level keywords. But I was like, you know, what would be really great content for him, especially because he's in Charlotte, like naming a Charlotte park where specific things happen with dogs. Do you want your dog to get along better with other dogs at the Charlotte dog park or whatever? You know what I mean? And I was like, that's the type of content that really will set you apart because People are going to identify with those things that you know and they know and the problems that they're having there. And so I think that's such a great exercise. I'm, I'm going to have to put that in the chat GPT or something. It's just like mm-hmm. opening questions, better questions about how you can make that content connect with your person where they're at. Exactly. And people also ask is the best place for this. We know that Google is pulling people also ask into the SGE search experience. So even if those are z- zero search volume terms, they're important enough that Google puts them there. So if you're like, I have no idea what people are asking about X topic, pull something from people also ask and start creating content around that because that's Google telling you this is what people also ask. Yeah, I love that someone said that is just a such a great resource for the user journey. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, so 100%. It's like- Yes, once they ask this, then they look for this and they look for that. So as you're thinking about those six touch points or 21 touch points, it's, ah, here they are for you. Yeah. And what you just outlined right there for anyone listening, and we're not going to have time to get into this, but that's a really great place to create a content pillar strategy for your website, right? You create an overarching content pillar topic that is usually a how-to, a what-is, or a guide, right? That's usually really meaty, like 3,500 or more so words. And then you create some sub content pillars underneath that, which is like 1,500 words. And then you create a few baby blog posts to support it, which are usually around 750 words. And what you just outlined from that people also ask journey can be a guide for creating that content pillar. And the next thing you have eight to 10 pieces of super, super authoritative topical content around one specific topic related back to your core expertise. Yeah. We have to stop there, but I do have one more question because that content journey is just so neat to me. And GA4 kind of breaks that down. I can't remember what it's called, where they interacted with your brand. So I just wondered, is, is there a way to extract that from GA4? Is there like a, any quick way to do that you have to share or know anything about that? Yeah, I think you can download the links, but I think that the best thing to do is to not think of it holistically necessarily, but think of it on a page-to-page basis. If you created a landing page where your purpose is to get people on your email list, we'll look at that landing page and then the flow from there to understand, okay, nobody's getting on the email list. They're not even going to that email list sign-up page, but they're going over here. And I would look at it in microcosms, right? And break it down because you can look at that and be like, this is really overwhelming. So I would think about what are the goals of each of the pages that I have on my website? And they should have goals, right? And then look at the path from there, because I think that helps make it a little bit more digestible. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I take a, a very high view of things sometimes. And even my dad said, like, you got to break that down. Exactly. exactly. Break it down. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm eating this elephant in one bite. Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So this was super, super informative. Nina, thanks so much. That whole infinite loop of traditional funnel, like I love that visual so much. But someone wants to contact you, where are all the places they can find you? 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram. That's usually where I'm hanging out at Nina Gibson Co. And then my website, ninagibson.co is where you can check me out, find me, shoot me an email, get on my email list. I share a lot of stuff by email on a weekly basis. So yeah, I would love to connect. Yeah, I got on your email list. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And then just even more specifically, if there's like a right fit client right now that's looking for you, how can they identify themselves that they're, you know, ready to work with you? That's such a good question. I think if you are a product-based business or you are somebody who is creating a lot of content right now and it's just not doing anything for you, then that's something that I can 100% help with. I offer SEO coaching, I offer done for you, and then audits and power hours. And I have something really cool called the Lazy Girl Marketing Pass. So it's an annual membership to all of my public and private workshops just for pass holders. So if you're like, you know what? I'm not ready to invest big time in SEO, but I want to stay on top of all of the changes and you like this conversation, that's a thing for you. So yeah, there's a few different ways heading into that you have to work with me. All right. I hope that this is not the last time that we chat on this podcast, but definitely I want to stay in contact with you online. I really appreciate all of the amazing insights you gave. I can't wait to edit and listen to it again and take more notes, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was so good. All right. See you next time.